Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Storytime with Boone. Thanks again for downloading it. You're looking well. You're looking really well. That suits you, that as well. 25. Wow. 25 episodes. I really didn't think I'd make it this far, to be honest with you. But here I am. Anyway, massive thank you again uh, for all the positive feedback that you've been sending my way. It's always uh, appreciated. It's nice to see people on Twitter as well talking about the podcast. I'm on there as at uh, the real Boone if you want to follow me or get in touch. On this episode, to celebrate the fact that this is number 25, uh, a bit of a theme, some stuff that happened 25 years ago, 1991 to be precise. I'll tell you about how a a fairly straightforward trip to Spain to film a pop video ended in death and destruction, literally. Death and destruction a quarter of a century ago in Spain. 25 years since the Manic Street Preachers recorded their debut album. I'll talk about some of my favourite memories of those guys uh, as I've got to know them over the years. And I'll also tell you about how a a good deed of the day, 25 years ago on a a Japanese subway train, went horribly wrong and left me looking like a a ruthless and ignorant English bloke. (laughs) On each episode, I talk about how a particular song that I've written came about. Uh, Today, I'll tell you about the uh, instrumental track which closed our 1991 album. The album was The Beast Inside and the closing track was an instrumental called Dreams Are All We Have. I'll tell you how that piece of music came about. The unsigned stroke upcoming band that you'll hear at the end of this episode are a band that I've stumbled across recently. I've not seen them yet, but uh, they've not actually done any gigs as far as I know. But to say that I'm excited about the recordings that they sent to me is a, a massive understatement. They're called Dice House and, in my opinion, I think they could become one of the standout Manchester bands of the 20-teenies or whatever this decade's cool hip-sounding nickname is. What do they call it? Is it the 20-teens? I don't know any, but one of the big bands of this era I'll be playing at the end of this episode, Dice House. The podcasts are brought to you by those ace people over at Distorted Productions based in Leeds. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together with loving care every episode. You can hear all the, uh, the full versions of the tracks on this episode and you can hear other tracks as well which come to mind or are in some way connected to the stories I'm going to be telling you. Okay, let's do it. Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. When the Inspiral Carpets decided to release the single Caravan in 1991, we decided to film the video for it in a place called Almeria, which is on the southeast coast of Spain, overlooking the Mediterranean. The record, Caravan, had a very prominent sort of piano line, which I played on it, and it it reminded a lot of people of the old honky-tonk piano music that you see in, in cowboy films. I was trying to make it sound like house music. I was doing house piano line as far as I was concerned, but everything like that. Oh, onky-tonk piano, man, onky-tonk piano. And because of that, I think because mainly because of that influence, that, that vibe, we decided that the video should have elements of cowboy imagery in it, you know, westerns and that, like the old saloon and a, a dusty little one or a cowboy town sort of vibe, you know, and us lot strutting about all cool and moody. And we told the video production company I think they were called State, they were connected with Mute Records. And we said we wanted it to look like Depeche Mode's video for that single Personal Jesus. And I think some of the same people at State have been involved in Personal Jesus. And we were all massive fans of Depeche and we were very proud to be on the same record label, Mute. So when we had the meeting with the production people, the video production people, they said, so you want it to look a bit like that one, do you? And we said, no, we want it to look just like it. We want it to look exactly like the Depeche one. It's quite shocking when you watch both videos now. If you watch Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode and then watch Caravan by the Inspirals, it's it's like, it's pretty much the same. Although we did say in the meeting, we're not dressing up as fucking cowboys or like Depeche did. We're not dressing up as cowboys, but we want it to look exactly like that. And we all totally love Depeche Mode, so it's like more of a homage 
to them than anything. You know what I mean? And so we flew out to Spain. And it was just before we started a tour of the States. Uh, so early 1991. And we went to the exact same cowboy town where Depeche had made the video. Same buildings, same lighting, same shadow silhouettes, exactly the same vibe. It was in a, a part of um, Almeria uh, in Spain. And it's known as the Tabernas Desert. And the actual town that we used for the filming, it was initially built as a film set for making Western movies in the 50s and 60s. And it's been developed and added to over the years. And um, there's been like hundreds of films and TV shows and adverts made there. And because of the, the landscape in that part of Spain, it just looks like a real typical definitive desert. You know what I mean? It really looks like the old Wild West back in the days of the classic cowboys and Indians uh, movies, you know. Filmmakers had started making Western movies out there in Almeria as early as like the 40s and 50s, apparently. So films like Lawrence of Arabia, that was done out there. Fistful of Dollars, that was done in the actual town that we filmed Caravan in. And a recent episode of Doctor Who as well, which is called A Town Called Mercy. So still now, still a very popular destination with filmmakers that are looking for that cowboy sort of vibe, you know what I mean? These days, the whole thing's a bit of a theme park as well. It's uh, If you look up Western Leon or um, Fort Hollywood, Fort Bravo, it's all on the internet anyway, but have a look at it. Almeria, Spain. Were Depeche Mode driven into town in the video in a modern-day pickup truck, we decided that because the single's title was Caravan, we thought, right, OK, we'll get a Volkswagen camper van. And we said, well, I'll have an actual caravan as well if you've got one. So they got us an old-school caravan from somewhere. And um, I think we were just throwing all these ideas. Anything that came to mind when we listened to it, we were just shouting at the director and saying, right, what this, what that, Depeche Mode, Volkswagen, Reindeer's Head, get us one of them. And we even suggested a, a belly dancer as well, or a snake charmer, because the bit that I play on my far feeser organ, it goes, nee, 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 just reminded us of uh, like snake charmers and our belly dancers. So we said, get us a belly dancer. I think we've got a belly dancer, didn't we? We've got a belly dancer, but no snake charmer. We even managed to get an old, an actual caravan as well for the film, a little three or four birth thing, proper little shit thing it was. I'm saying that now, it's probably somebody's pride and joy, one at the time. There's probably some little old bloke now in Spain sat there in his caravan telling all his mates how. Like, you know that band in Spiral Carpets? They borrowed this caravan once for a, a pop video. Did you know that? <laughs> Probably not, actually, when I think about it. But the video production company, they had loads of difficulty trying to locate um, a classic Volkswagen camper van in that part of Spain. They're, just, they're not that popular. And they came back to us and they said they found a guy, a Volkswagen enthusiast, that he had one in a town which was quite a distance away from Almeria, so it was going to have to be driving for a while to get there. And he said he didn't generally hire it out, but he was willing to make the journey for us so they could use it on the day just for a small fee. So he said, cool, bring it down, see you in the desert. And I was ill on the day, the day of filming, I was down with some sort of tummy bug or whatever. And I know that I seem to have spent a lot of time in the 90s. When I'm telling you these stories, there seems to be a lot of abdominal pains, under and all that. And I always put it down to either drinking too much or food poisoning. But then about a decade later, I suffered a, a ruptured appendix and I, I got peritonitis. And the doctors said when they when they operated on me then that there's a lot of scar tissue dating back years and years. So maybe that's what it was. All these stories I'm telling you about me being poorly through the 90s with me with stomach problems. It was probably ruptured appendix going. I don't get it anymore since that, that surgery just doesn't happen anymore. Anyway, so I'm there in agony, but cracking on regardless because I'm a bit tough. And we're flying to the States the next day, like I said, so we commenced this big tour. I wasn't feeling it. Anyway. So we filmed a few scenes in and around the town, like us playing in the old saloon bar, me on the upright piano, on guitar. 
found a few locally sourced actors and actresses and they were playing their parts around us. So we had some dodgy looking Spanish blokes looking through these dirty windows for some reason. I don't know what, what that was supposed to symbolise, but they're spying on us through the windows. And we were there trying to recreate the um, personal Jesus Depeche Mode vibe, you know what I mean? And the video features a young Spanish woman as well running about with a, ca a cage. She's got a little bird cage and there's a canary in it. And I can't remember why, why the canary, why did we have to have a canary in a cage? I don't know who came up with that. But by the end of the day, this canary had died. It was just on the bottom of the cage, like doing nothing, a little yellow thing, all, you know, snuffed out and that. And it was it was probably the shock of being rattled around all day because this girl with cage, she was legging it backwards and forwards, running around like there's no tomorrow. And again, I don't know why, but the canary died and it was no animal welfare officers on Spanish film sets back in those days are out like that, you know what I mean? Anyway, the good news is we persuaded the same actress to do a bit of belly dancing on the day. She did, and that's in the video, and it gave the video a bit of much-needed glamour. So later on, right, the guy arrives with his Volkswagen, a beautiful orange thing, the, the, the Volkswagen, not the bloke. Mind you, he was a bit orange as well, from what I can remember. But we got introduced to him, like, all through our bags in the back of it and set about filming some, some driving scenes, just simple stuff. And as often seemed to happen, I was a designated driver as well, so you see me in the video driving it. I think because I was the oldest in the band and I did a lot of driving back home, I was a van driver before the Inspiral started, so I always ended up doing the driving. And... Same with Saturn Five on it. In Saturn Five, I did the, I drove the car in that the Mustang, which was smart. But anyway, so first few shots, anyway, dead straightforward. Us cruising up and down dusty tracks in this um, Volkswagen, you know, listening to tune and that, driving into the sunset, shit like that, usual stuff. And after a while, the director decided it was time for everyone to take a break. Like, let's have half an hour, you know, everybody just have a, have a chill, have a drink, and that. It was sweltering. I mean, everybody was sweating the bollocks off. Everyone relaxed and took time to, you know, rehydrate themselves, whatever, except the canary, obviously. <laughs> and I suggested that me and the band take a little ride down the road because we'd seen this, um, like, a cliff. We'd, we'd drove past this cliff and there's this incredible view stretching out below it. And we said we'd like to go down there. If we want, while we're chilling, we'll just go down there, me and the lads and that. And the director asked the Volkswagen enthusiast, Pedro, whatever he's called, said, do you mind? And he, said, and he nodded. He said, no, all right. So we drove off across this bloody desert, didn't we? And we stopped about 40 yards from the edge of the cliff because I thought there's no way I'm, you know, accidentally driving over that. Parked the Volkswagen, put the handbrake on, got out and walked to the edge. And we all sat down. And there's been a few moments in my time with the Inspirals where I've sat or stood in, like, awe and amazement and realised what an incredible journey that it's been up to that point, you know what I mean? From from writing songs in my bedroom in Oldham, when I used to live with mum and dad, and rehearsing in this cotton mill in Guide Bridge, you know, dreaming of seeing the world. From that to this, sat looking out over this fantastic and breathtaking golden landscape, way down at the bottom of Spain, you know, the Mediterranean's just over there, and I'm sat there with my mates, it's like, you get a real sense of achievement and success, you know, it wells up inside you at times like that, you know, despite all the joking and all the, all the laddishness, whatever they call it, you know, be nice when it's finished and all that, and, you know, despite the constant extreme farting demonstrations that go on and, 
who can piss the highest up the cactus. You know, at times like that, you know you've you know you've arrived, man. You feel it. You really feel it. So anyway, after a few moments reflecting on the better things in life, you know, we decided we should be getting back to the crew and get on with the job in hand. And that's so I stood up. I said, come on, let's get back. And I turned around. I started walking back to the camper van. The rest of the band were like mooching about behind me. And I remember looking at the Volkswagen and I just thought, I wish I had one of them. It's such a fine piece of German engineering, you know, absolute design classic, innit? Stood there proudly facing us, looking at it, it was like big round headlamp eyes, like smiling at me, this thing. I thought, I'm going to get one of them. I love it, you know. And then suddenly, I hear Craig Gill, our drummer, shout out, chance of a run out like that, which for those of you who know anything about the world of cricket, will know it's, it's a term used when, when the batsman or batsmen are running for the stumps and the ball's being thrown back at the stumps by the fielding team. And if the ball hits the stumps before the batsman or batsmen get there first, it's game over for the batsman or batsmen. You knew that, didn't you? So I hear this, chance of a run out. And I, and I assume something's airborne. And before I've got time to turn around, I see this big fuck off stone hit the middle of the Volkswagen's windscreen. And it just takes a lot out. It just shatters into a million pieces of glass, this windscreen glistening like diamonds in the sand. It was like a scene from one of them spaghetti western movies that they used to film out there, you know what I mean? Just, like, just oh, glass everywhere. And I just sunk to my knees and I just got, oh, fuck. And the rest of the boys arrived and they're all at my side and that. We all just stood there staring at it. And I'm thinking, fucking Pedro's not going to be happy with this, is he? One of them says, what the fuck are we going to do now? And I'm, some, somebody else suggested we... We just said that we hit a bump while we are driving. We hit a bump, it's a rock, and it just shattered itself. And one of the other lads said, no, just say a storm flicked up, you know what I mean, and, and hit the windscreen. But I even suggested, I'm being dead straight with that, I even suggested we could push the Volkswagen over the cliff and say that the brakes had failed and, you know, we all had to jump for our lives just before it went over the cliff and you need to sort your fucking brakes out next time, mate, putting our lives at risk. Like I, I did suggest that. But the reason we didn't do that because we would have done, but all our bags, all our suitcases were in the back. Do you know what I mean? And it looked suspicious, wouldn't it? We all went walking back up the um, the canyon <laughs> with our Samsonite wheelie suitcases behind us. We couldn't leave, you know, none of us fancied leaving our bags inside and pushing the Volkswagen to its death. We we had to have our bags, you know what I mean? So that option was out there. So instead of what we did, we pushed out the, the remnants of the windscreen, just got the lot out of there, all climbed in and proceeded driving back up this canyon to where the film crew were sat relaxing, all sunbathing there with our obliging new Spanish friend, whose day was about to get <laughs> really fucking ruined. And as we got near them, I'm driving, and I could see them, the people waving at us, oh, yeah, the lads are coming back, like, oh, nodding and that, not realising that the windscreen wasn't there. And just at the moment when I knew that every single one of them was looking at us, I leaned forward and waved through where the windscreen should have been, like, like a proper dick. All right. You all right? <laughs> and Pedro, whatever his name was, he was holding a paper cup, probably coffee, and he immediately just dropped it and his arms just sunk to his side like that. And I've never seen a man look so deflated. Deflated Pedro. <laughs> That's a good name for a band, isn't it? <laughs> deflated Pedro. Tonight in session, deflated Pedro on the shattered windshields. Anyway, so... Pedro's gutted. We're having a bit of a giggle. We, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we were a bit apologetic, but he won't have it. So we filmed them. We filmed what would be the, the very final shot in the video, which is a scene where, very ironically, <laughs> this Volkswagen camper van just mysteriously disappears into thin air. And then the director said, right, it's a wrap. And 
off we all went, including Pedro, for dinner in a nearby restaurant. That was it. You know, job was over, and we all sat there eating, and we were we were sniggering us like we're having a snigger, and he didn't say much. He, he just sat there staring ahead, not really in the mood to eat at all. Even when I said to him. Yeah, mate, how are you getting home? He just, he, he didn't think it was funny. You know what I mean? How are you getting home? He'd come about 400 miles, this mugger. He wouldn't look at us. He's probably thinking, where the fuck am I going to get a, a new windscreen for a you know, 25-year-old Volkswagen camper van? Bearing in mind as well, at this point, 1991, nobody had invented the internet yet. You couldn't just go on Amazon and key in, you know, a, a 1960-something Volkswagen camper van windscreen. But, you know, it, you couldn't do it. And to make things worse, this poor fella lived in a really remote part of Spain, you know what I mean? And anyway, so Caravan, it was the, it became the opening track of the second album, Beast Inside. It only got to number 30 in the UK singles chart. I think we were a bit disappointed at the time about that, but part of me often wonders actually, was it all, all worth the, the life of a canary and the, the literal shattering of a, a Spanish man's faith in humanity? Was it all worth it? But I think, yeah, you know, even if only for those few tranquil moments, where we sat on the top of that Spanish canyon just seeing the whole world laid out before us. It was worth it, just for that moment. It was worth it, just for that. Sorry, Pedro. Sadly, tell the world today Tony will not return All the sadness to Did you like that story? It's nice that one. You like the next one as well. Let me just have a drink. Red Stripe, Jamaica Lager beer. That wasn't an advertisement either. Oh, they can. If you're listening, if anybody from Red Stripe's listening, you can tell that's an advertisement. If you want to get behind my podcast, so it's now 25 years since the Manic Street Preachers recorded their debut album. Uh, Generation Tourist. It was recorded at Paul Weller's studio in Surrey, uh, which is the Black Barn Studios. So between July and December of 91, they recorded perhaps one of the most important albums in British pop music history, and it particularly not, you know, in terms of alternative music and that. And I wasn't the biggest fan of the Manics back then, but I genuinely did appreciate that they were one of the few British bands at the time who were capable of carrying the baton, which the Clash had passed on a few years earlier. Yes. Hey, excuse me. <laughs> that was a red stripe. Sorry about that. <laughs> excuse me. I always think that the the Manics address politics in a way that few bands have done as effectively, really, like before or since then. And I've got to know the guys out of the band over the years, and I've got nothing but love and respect for them now. It's worth me pointing out as well that the Manics were instrumental in helping XFM. Uh, when we launched uh, our stations in Cardiff and, and Manchester as well. The Manics were a, a big part of the launch of XFM Manchester. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing them several times in my in years as a broadcaster, as the Manics, and, and whilst James and Nicky have occasionally done solo records, I've met up with them then and chatted and stuff. In fact, one of my favourite things in the world is a photograph of the Manics holding my baby boy, Cassius. Uh, it was in October of 2011. 
it was only, it was one year old at the time, and the Manics were doing a session for us at XFM in Manchester, and I brought baby Cassius in to meet him. It's a bit like show and tell. My wife was, she wasn't well at the time, so I said, oh, I'll bring, I'll take Cass with me to, uh, to work. <laughs> anyway, so I took him in, and uh, I got this beautiful picture of the Manics, all three of them, all smiling their heads off and holding this beautiful, blonde, happy baby up. It's a great picture. I had a, another particularly memorable few minutes once with James, the singer James Dean Bradfield, where we sat together in a small studio at XFM. I think it was July 2006. And he was promoting his solo album, The Great Western. And it was his little studio, and it was just me and him and his guitar, a couple of mics. And it was pre-recorded, so it was going to be broadcast later that day, which meant that nobody else in the world was listening. It was just me and him, literally. And he told me about how his mother had passed away uh, a few years earlier after a long illness. She'd been battling cancer. And how he'd sat with her every day in her final days. And and he told me about the song Ocean Spray, which was it was inspired by that time, sitting with his mum. And Ocean Spray is a reference to the, the fruit juice, which it was the only thing that she enjoyed drinking during her illness. And he told me this story. And then he sung me the... Um, the Manic's song, Ocean Spray, just on his own, it's just me and him. And it is a beautiful piece of songwriting. If you're not familiar with it, check it out. But the fact that no one else in the world was listening as we talked and as he sung, and it just made it an incredibly personal moment. You know what I mean? It's a very powerful memory for me. And it's hard to put into words, but this iconic rock star just talking so, like, frankly about something so private. As I said, something that I'll, I'll probably never forget. And the Manic's bass player, Nicky, Nicky Wire, well, he's one of my favourite people in the industry. He's just so warm and eloquent and attentive and caring and very clever, incredibly clever and funny as fuck. He's another one of those icons like Paul Weller and like Manny who you just end up talking about very ordinary shit with, you know, when you get together. I had an in-depth discussion with Johnny Marr last week about regrouting the tiles in my bathroom and having that. <laughs> it's true. And it's so... I'll tell you my favourite Manic Street Preachers anecdote, should I? It's funny, this one. In an interview with the, the enemy, sometime in 1994, I said that if our singer at the time, Tom, ever died, that we'd probably ask James Dean Bradfield of the Manics to join us because he was the one of the few people that we thought could fill Tom's boots. It was our way of saying what a great singer James was. And we'd never met the Manics at that point. Our paths hadn't crossed yet. And a couple of weeks after the article was published, the Inspirals were invited to the, the first ever Enemy Brat Awards. So it's the Enemy's alternative to the Brits. And the Brats eventually became the uh, the Enemy Awards, isn't it? which still happens every year. There's a band that were doing all right in 1994. The Inspirals were invited. We were, we were an happening band. We were happening, weren't we? And we were invited down to London to be at the awards ceremony. And we were honoured and excited. With it, although I don't think we were up for any awards, but... Just a big party, really, you know, loads of free drinks and that. And the event was held at the, the New Empire and the hosts were Vic Reeves and uh, Bob Mortimer. And also there were people like Radiohead and Suede and the Boo Radleys. And so quite an extravagant, although at times a bit rowdy sort of affair, you know what I mean? Lots of celebs mysteriously spending lots of time in the uh, the bathroom and that, you know what I mean? Partway through the evening, anyway, we spotted the Manics making their way through the audience to the seats. And James Dean Bradfield spotted us. And he broke off from the rest of the band and he, he made his way over to our table and we thought he was going to say something here. I was thinking he was going to say, oh, guys, thanks for the nice words in the enemy the other week, you know, very flattered and that, such a compliment, you know, thanks. And he walks up to us, he looks Tom straight in the eye and he says, Tom, please don't ever fucking die. <laughs> and he walks off, he just walks off laughing to himself. <laughs>
And from that moment, I just, I just love the Manics more than ever. I met the Manics again in uh, the October of 1994, and they, they were touring the All the Bible album. They played at Manchester Academy, and I went along with my friend Les Carter of the uh, the band Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. We went along with him and his uh, his girlfriend at the time, Chrissy. And the Manics at that point, they were at the top of the game, you know what I mean? Guitarist Richie, uh, Richie Edwards, he was back in action after a couple of months in hospital. We went backstage after the gig to meet the band, and I remember Richie being extremely lucid and chatty and he seemed to be more in control of his faculties than the music press had, had portrayed him to be in recent months he, he, he seems to be making progress because his bouts of depression and drug abuse and self-harming it was a popular topic in the press throughout like 1993 and 94 but that night he seemed to be doing all right and sadly just a matter of weeks later he was gone you know he just he'd be just gone it's incredible but in that dressing room that night james dean bradfield he made me laugh. He said to me, Clint, can we on here to have a quick word with you? And I went over to him and he said, just want to ask you something. I said, what? He said, is that singer of yours still alive? And I said, yeah, he's doing fine. He said, that's good. Let's try and keep it that way, should we? <laughs> you know, that's the manics. Always a band noted for their intense political views, aren't they? And the seriousness and obviously the tragedy of Richie's loss. But a band whose humour I've come to adore over the uh, 20 odd years uh, since I got to know them. During a bit of downtime on a, a tour of Japan in 1991, one of our friends out there is a man who originally was a fan, but we became very good friends with him over the years. And he offered to take us shopping to a part of Tokyo called Akihabara. I think that's how you pronounce it. It was called Nobby, and it was very popular in the Inspiral's camp because he went to great lengths to convince the, the Japanese population that we were the greatest band since the Beatles. Before we even set foot in Japan, he spent many days dressed up as a cow walking around Tokyo, giving flyers out for our gigs and our, our records, mooing loudly as he did so. Top bloke, you know what I mean? And that part of the city, anyway, that he took us to Akihabara, it's well known for selling the latest cutting-edge electronics, you know, for really good prices, tax-free as well, if I remember rightly. So the most advanced electronic items in the world to go on sale in Akihabara before... I hope I'm saying that right. Before anywhere else on the planet, just think about that for a minute. For tourists like us, obsessed with music, it's total heaven, you know what I mean? And I'm guessing to this day, it's probably still the first place that touring bands go to when they go to Tokyo, so they take us to uh, Akihabara. It's all co also called Electric Town. Let's call it Electric Town now. Take us to Electric Town, Nobby. So when we were there, 1991, CDs had only been in our world for like four or five years, really, you know, in terms of being available and affordable to the, the man in the street. Portable CD players were quite a new thing as well in 91. Again, affordable for people like us. They, they were quite a new thing. Sony had built the first Discman back in 84, uh, I think, but for a few years it was just it was too expensive. People couldn't afford it, and it was quite big as well. <laughs> but the gear that we were buying in Tokyo in 1991, it wouldn't be available until the following year at home. So we were turning up after these trips abroad like time travellers, you know what I mean? With electronic stuff and training shoes like people had never seen, you know. In fact, it'd be another four years before Sony would launch uh, an in-car CD player in the UK for the first time, and they used a TV advertising campaign for it, which featured our single, I Want You. And um, 
you might remember the advert, the CD player in the car, in the advert, it actually showed the name Inspiral. When the bloke puts the disc in, the LED screen lit up and it said Inspiral. Very impressive. And that advert featuring our track is also shown in cinemas around the UK. So before every single screening of Batman Forever in the UK, 95, 96 it was, just after it split up, ironically, but before the movie came on, they showed this advert and it just gave us such a massive plug, even though we, you know, we'd split. Anyway, back in uh, 91 in Tokyo, we're buying up all these amazing gadgets at top prices. Portable CD players being very high on our priority list. And I even bought myself, check this out, a portable DAT player, so a DAT tape recorder, that's a digital audio tape. And I've still got it. It's one of the best examples I've got of now obsolete technology in my collection proper niche it's a brilliant thing you'll end up in a museum I tell you anyway so we all, we all stocked up the band Noel Coyle was with us then we headed back to the, the hotel completely loaded up with all these bags and boxes all giddy as fuck you know what I mean and on the way to the hotel we got on one of those trains not, not a tube train they call it a subway don't they in Japan so it's the uh, metro subway you see them on TV a lot don't you you get on the train and it's rammed you're the last one in right you get on no room for anybody else so that you stood there waiting for the doors to shut behind this is in Tokyo but then this bloke in a uniform comes running up puts his hands on your back and starts pushing you further in so you can get more people in there it's true they call them shovers shovers they call have a look on the internet I'm sure they'll be on, they'll be on YouTube right so this bloke got about another 30 people in behind me this knobhead here pushing away pushing like again like that and I'm like, mate, what are you doing? You're squashing my boxes, you tit. Like that. It, but you've got all these extra people in. And it's all there squashed together on this train, rattling along somewhere under Japan. And I'm stood face to face with Nobby. Right? I'm looking at him like that. Right? You're right, Nobby? <laughs> Grinning at him. And he's like, yes, I'm fine, Clint. How are you? Like, I'm good, Nobby. I'm good. Cheers for sorting us out, man. Cheers for sorting us out. I've got some nice tackle back there. And then I realised, because I'm so close to him, I can see that he's got this, this really long black hair that's fallen from his head and it's currently resting on his face right just below his cheekbone like next to a mole or something so still holding on to the safety bar over my head with my left hand all my bags are stuffed between my legs on the floor and I said to him yeah mate no, wait, come here a minute so he looks up at me a bit confused but obediently you know holding still as I reach up with my right hand and I carefully get hold of this hair on his face and I remove it and as I pull it away all his skin pops up and he shouts out ah, what, are you, what are you doing like that and I didn't realise it was attached to him he was fucking attached to him it must have hurt him he had little tears in his eyes I'm like I'm like, sorry man you alright man I'm stood there with his fucking hair in between my finger and the thumb like that I'd yanked it out of his face and I found out later this is true this I'm not kidding you I found out later that day that some people in Japan believe a mole with a hair growing out of it or hers growing out is a sign of like good luck or good fortune or it might be virility, it's one anyway, but I can't remember. But it, it's one of, anyway, it's basically it's a thing to be nurtured, warm with pride. And I'm there, aren't I, with it in my hand, I pulled it right out of his mush. Anyway, I never discussed it with Nobby again. It was just something we didn't mention. And he never looked at me the same way, though, after that. And if you, if you ever hear this, Nobby, I'm sure you're going to hear it at some point. I'm really, really sorry. And I hope that the last 25 years has brought you wealth good health and, and fine virility and I suppose the, the moral of the story is don't ever mess with a, a man's mole, you know what I mean <laughs> leave it be <laughs> I am a mole and I live in a hole
like to talk in every episode about how I came to write a particular song and uh, what inspired it, who I ripped off, etc. And I told you earlier on in this episode about the making of the video for Caravan. Now, that was the opening track on the Beast Inside album. It was our second album. It came out in night one. On this episode of Storytime, I'm going to talk to you about the instrumental track, Dreams Are All We Have. So that was the closing track on the same album. That album saw us at our, probably our darkest period in terms of subject matter and sounds and mood and all that. Not many light moments on it, not, not much, um, not many giggles on it, let's say. And I mentioned Dreams Are All We Have back on episode 14. I talked a lot about um, Strawberry Studios in Stockport and how I'd set up a mountain of keyboards and recorded this track uh, like in one take, live sort of thing. And the style of the track, it's based totally on the music which Angelo Badalamenti had released in 1991 for the uh, Twin Peaks TV series. And the Inspirals have become pretty obsessed, I think it's fair to say about this, you know, not just with the TV show, but the music that went with it. You know, there's a lot of sonic references to Twin Peaks, I reckon, throughout the Beast Inside album. It was what we were all listening to, particularly with the keyboard sounds. You know, there's a lot of um, plagiarism going on there. And the other album that came out around the same time, Angelo Badalamenti, a lot of the same music, the same vibe as Twin Peaks, but with a girl called Julie Cruz singing on it. Worth getting both albums. And that gloomy, surreal and ominous mood that David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti created with the visual and sonic imagery in Twin Peaks pretty much became the template for what we wanted the Beast Inside album to feel like. And the title of the track, Dreams Are All We Have, it actually came to me before I'd even started writing the music for it. I was in touch with a lot of fans and people that I'd meet on my travels. We'd write letters. You remember letters, don't you? You'd write letters backwards and forwards and that. You have these conversations that go on for months. And I got a letter from somebody in Canada on one occasion. And when I wrote back, I, put, I closed it with the words, something like, ah, oh, well, we all live on dreams. And that was a reference to another Inspiral song that I'd written called uh, Song for a Family, which is also on episode 14. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back from the same person and it ended with the words, dreams are all we have, Clint. And I just thought then, what a great collection of words. And when I started working on the track, composing it, if you like, I didn't even I didn't even think it was going to be an inspired track at all. It was just me trying to emulate the music from Twin Peaks, just dicking about. I think it was while we were working on the album down at Ridge Farm Studios, I'd be tinkering about with sounds and trying things out killing time a lot, a lot of the time, you know, just uh, while the others were working on their parts, I'd be exploring what this new synthesizer of mine could do. But still keeping my Farfisa organ as the main sound through it. And I'd recorded a lot of the album with this synthesizer, but I'm still getting used to it and getting my head around it. Anyway, so soon the lads started saying this new piece that I was working on sounded top and we should think about putting it on the album. But we ran out of time at Ridge Farm, so I didn't get a chance to record it down there. And when we got back home and set up camp in Strawberry Studios, ready to do the final mix and that of the album, I set up all my keyboards and I went in one night and recorded the track. And it was all in one take and it was all live, no studio trickery at all. Turn the lights down. And I programmed my synth, it's an Ensonic VFX synthesizer, a 1980s classic it is. And some of the sounds I put in there, I did it so that the sounds would uh, come in as I held certain keys down with my left hand. So you'd get like a bass note on a piano sound followed by this sort of string sound that fades in a couple of seconds later. Clever things or synthesizers. Check them out. Mine was the Ensonic VFX SD. In fact, that same synth actually featured on the first Oasis demo I've ever recorded. Our Rod in all borrowed it one weekend when Oasis uh, went into out of the Blue Studio to record some tracks. It was uh, later on in 1991. And Noel 
and I was signed one at the time, Mark Coyle, borrowed it again on another occasion to make some dance music, believe it or not. Anyway, so back in, we're in Strawberry Studios, recording Dreams Are All We Have, my little ode to Angelo Badalamenti and David Lynch. And Chris Nagel was there to record it. He produced the Beast Inside album. He did a brilliant job as well. Graham put a bit of guitar at the end of the, the track. And Noel was there as well. In fact, we did a version just for a laugh right at the end of the, the session where at the end of the track, me and Noel sung over it like a couple of pub singers, just as a wind-up really, so that when the rest of the band came in the next day and listened to the playback of it, you got this lovely few minutes of dramatic, elegant, majestic soundscape, proper goosebump-inducing stuff. And then me and Noel at the end going, dreams are all we have, dreams are all we have, dreams are all... It's probably still on there. On the two-inch multi-track tape, that'll still be on there. And I'm sure that'll count as the, the first ever studio recording of Noel Gallagher singing. I should dig that out, shouldn't I? So me and my wife, Charlie, celebrated our wedding anniversary last week, 11 years, 11 wonderful years. We had a night out, went to one of our favourite restaurants, Damson in Heaton Moor, near where we live in Stockport. And we uh, we had the food, and then we did a little pub crawl up and down the bars and pubs of Heaton Moor. I think we went in some of them a few times, we kept just crossing over the street. And, just, and it was really quiet, Tuesday night, not many people about. And we ended up quite drunk, sat outside this big pub, the Elizabethan. And it's probably about 10.30 at night. I mean, it was a nice evening. The weather was nice. It was quite mild. And what we assumed was the pub cat came and sat nearby. And we went over and sat with it on this, this table. And it sat right in the middle of, you know, in front of us. And we were both there stroking this pussy cat. Stop that now. Come on. How old are you? We're there stroking this cat. It was so affectionate. We were tickling its chin and rubbing its neck. And the cat's there purring him here. Like they do. That was a good impression, wasn't it? We haven't got a cat in the Boone house. Uh, we've got our pet lizard, Manny Rango Boone. He's a bearded dragon. I probably told you about him before. We've got one goldfish. The other one died recently. He's buried in the garden now with a, an headstone with fishy written on it, courtesy of Hector. <laughs> and we've got two recent additions, the uh, the rabbits, Caramel and Snowflake. If you listen to episodes 17 and 19 uh, for the backstory on the, the Boone bunnies. But no cat. We, we don't have a cat. We used to have one. She was called Phoebe. And my mother-in-law lived in our attic for a year or so. <laughs> That makes it sound like some sort of vampire or something. The attic bedroom is actually the nicest room in the house. It's big, it's got window in it. It's a really nice room. And she stayed with us. She lived with us for about a year. And she and Phoebe became quite good friends. You'd hear them talking to each other most nights. And it'd be, because we always seemed to keep having babies and Phoebe was throwing up a lot and sleeping on piles of clean clothes. So it became a bit of a pain. There's catters everywhere and cats sick and all that. Plus I started getting allergic reactions. Well, I assumed at the time because of the cat... So when Jill moved out to settle down with Malk, or Grandad Malk as he's now known, we persuaded her to take Phoebe with her, and she happily obliged, and the Boone House has been catless ever since. And we've never really fancied getting another cat until last Tuesday, when we'd had a drink. And the drunker we got, the more we thought this pub cat needed a new home, and we figured we could get it home. <laughs> and raise it like one of our own, I think we actually said that. We had it all figured out as well. So Charlie was going to flag a taxi down, 
and then I grab the cat and jump in the taxi and off we go with our new pet. It was obviously only the alcohol, you know what I mean, working its magic. We were, we, there's no way we'd have kidnapped a cat, you know what I mean, or catnapped the kitty. We'd just no way we'd have done such a thing, absolutely not. Plus there was loads of CCTV cameras about as well. And it probably wouldn't look great, would it, in lo- local newspapers, you know, in Clint Boone steals pub cat. Funny thing is, though, the week before that, we nearly ended up with a chicken in similar circumstances. I love the little brown thing at a pub up on the edge of the Peak District. One minute, it's strutting around proudly in the beer garden, like they do. Next minute, I'm feeding it crisps out of the palm of my hand, right at the side of our car, and it must have looked suspicious. But it followed me to the car. It did. The chicken followed me to the car, Your Honour. <laughs> well, the boom boys are like, oh, bring it home, Dad, bring it home. Charlie's like, come on, get it. Grab it, grab it. Baby Cassius, saw it was so funny. He was in pieces, that fella. Maybe I should stop talking about this now, because it's. Well, I know what's going to happen. I'll be getting knocks on my door every time somebody's pet goes missing in the neighbourhood. Clint, have you got a poodle? <laughs> anyway, happy anniversary, Charlie Boone. <laughs> Shh. Get back in the cupboard. Get back in that cupboard. Into the sea, you and me, all the years and no one home. I'll show you in spring, it's a treacherous thing. We miss you, yes. Okay, that's nearly it for this episode. Thanks again for downloading the podcast. Please subscribe if you've not already done so. And then uh, future episodes will just drop into your device when they go live. Don't forget the Spotify playlist I put together for each episode. It comes with complete versions of the songs that you've been hearing and and that I might have mentioned. And I usually keep it to like 12 relevant songs. And putting the Spotify playlist together, it's the last thing that I do when I'm uh, putting story time together. Legally, just so you know, we can only use 30-second clips of tracks on the podcast for copyright reasons. Uh, So if a track isn't subject to a record deal or a publishing deal, we can play the entire thing. That's why I'm able to play a full track by an unsigned band at the end of each episode. Just thought I'd tell you that. Hope you've enjoyed listening, and uh, thanks again to my friends over at Distorted Productions for helping me to get story time out to you. Check out my other podcast, which is called Set To Go. It's also available as a free download on iTunes if, uh, if you're into your new music. There's some amazing stuff out there, as you'll hear, on Set To Go. I always like to finish each episode of Storytime with an unsigned or upcoming band or artist. And on this episode, Dice House. Uh, apparently, Dice House started as a recording project between songwriter Ivan Dice House and uh, play and record records. The EP features Ivan on vocals, Stephen Evans on guitars, Owen Clifford on drums, and some backing vocals by Danielle Sibley on there as well. Dice House are currently locked away, working on the live set and ought to be performing soon. So as I said earlier, as far as I know, they've not done any gigs yet. They describe the music as northern, soulless, G-funk, art-punk, and they said their influences are anything good from post-punk through to 90s hip-hop. Now, personally, when I heard it and when I hear it, I think Talking Heads, I think Devo, Franz Ferdinand, the pop group, the four were in there. Elements have flowered up as well in the, uh, the the vocal delivery. But it's brilliant. And as I said earlier, I reckon these could end up being one of the, the most talked-about bands from the Manchester area in recent years. I absolutely love it. Thanks for listening again. I'll leave you with this wonderful track. It's Dice House with Terrified. I'll see you next time. Lots of love to you. Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Shut up,
They're in the middle, they're on the fence, they're on the right, I'm on the left. They're in my head, I can't control, I'm freaking out, how did they know? Yeah.